Hello and welcome to this Linklater's podcast on payments regulation. I'm joined online by a few of our payments regulation experts, Harry Eddis. Hello. Jean Price. Hello. And Paul Harris. Hello. In our last episode, Harry predicted that there would be more regulation to come for buy now pay later firms. And a few days later, the Bullard Review was published and recommended regulating buy now pay later firms. Later in this episode, we'll ask Mr. Carey about the first example of the UK diverging from EU rules in payment services, as well as what this weekend's lottery numbers are going to be. But before that, we're going to talk about fraud. Tackling fraud is a huge part of payments regulation. It has been a year since we looked at this topic in detail on this podcast. So today we'll bring you up to speed on the latest developments. Paul, what is the latest? Thanks, Simon. It's worth saying at the outset that payment fraud is definitely on the increase, which for some may not be much of a surprise given that we've had kind of the perfect storm of an increased use of digital payments um, due to the pandemic, um, as well as the fact that fraudsters have taken advantage of the stress and social changes caused by the pandemic, um, with a number of impersonation cases having surged. However, it's not that it's not as if the industry has kind of been sitting on its hands on this. It, it has been working to combat fraud. Um, but clearly there's still more work to do. Um, And against this backdrop, the payment systems regulator has actually recently released a couple of papers um, on fraud. Um, The first one is about authorized push payment fraud, uh, also known as APP scams. Um, And the second one is a bit broader, looking at interbank payment systems um, and how consumers could and possibly should be protected when they make payments from one payment account to another. Both papers at this stage are just simply kind of calling for views. Um, So they don't actually propose any real detailed rule changes at this stage, Um, but instead they're trying to gather feedback from relevant stakeholders as to what should possibly happen next. Okay, so um, in that case, let's talk about uh, APP fraud first. Jean, maybe you could remind us what that actually means. Thanks, Simon. And yeah, this is, um, I don't know why I find this so fascinating, but I do. We've sort of moved on from Nigerian princes and, um, you know, um, aunt settlements, which are sitting just waiting for me to, um, to get my hands on as soon as I send my bank details. But this is the sort of fraud that you all have read about in the press. And it's where the fraud sort of tends to be builder, your building society, the police, or anyone in particular, to con you into sending money directly to them. Um, And the one thing you'll notice since our last podcast is that there's been a rollout of the confirmation of payee. When you go to do an online payment now, it will ask you to put the bank details in with the name of the payee. My one I know also prompts me for whether it's a business or a personal account. And then what it does before you can even send the payment is it will tell you whether you've got a match. So if you've put in a name which doesn't correspond with the bank account number, it should be rejected and it should certainly put you on notice that something is is up. Um, And overall, that does seem to have worked very well because you have to do something um, and it comes up with a nice green light. I haven't actually had one that's come up red yet, so I'm I'm obviously not mixing in the right circles, but um, I'll report back on the later podcast when I get one of those. Um, So it's working well, as I say, but there are still a couple of problems with the confirmation of payee. Um, First of all, not everyone's required to apply it. The second one is that it doesn't by itself solve APP fraud. So it will prevent you accidentally sending money to um, Jane Bloggs instead of Joe Bloggs. But if you actually go in and approve a payment to someone is a fraudster 
and you give the correct details for the fraudster, confirmation of the payee isn't going to raise a red flag. Okay, so if I, I'm just imagining that as a, a as a bank customer, if I authorize a payment to someone else, I suppose it's actually going to be very difficult for the bank to anticipate that I've been scammed and to step in to prevent that payment going through. Is that the, the heart of the problem here? Yeah, and that, that's right, Simon. And, and what we've seen, you'll see now when you're doing an online payment is is you'll get a box saying who are you paying? You know, what's it for? Is it for an invoice? Is it for services? Things like that. And then it's somewhere you haven't paid before, it says, are you sure you want to send this payment? And I think the thing is, there's only so many times that your bank can ask, are you sure? Because by the time you've logged into your, um, your bank account to do the payment, you should have really thought through it by that stage. Um, and I'd be interested to know if anyone has any data on how many transactions stop at that stage. So I get to the are you sure? And then I think, oh, actually, I'm not. Um, there's a lot that banks can do and have been doing to erase awareness of risks. And you'll see the full risk warnings on your bank apps. Um, this education is important and needs to continue. And I say it's been, as Paul mentioned, there's been significant uptick in scams since we've all been in, in lockdown. The thing is, fraudsters are like water. You put a block in one place, they're going to find a way around it. Um, and so every time we, we close one gap, they will find another. Um, and when they do that, then our attention turns to redress and how the bank should go about reverse it, reimbursing um, customers when scams are successful. OK, so in terms of redress, I suppose what we're looking at here is a, a scenario where someone has fallen victim of a scam, presumably to no fault of their own. and they're now trying to get their money back from the banks? Yeah, that's right. And then, so a fund has been set up for these, what they call no blame situations. And it's part of a code um, which a group of firms have signed up to. It's called the Contingent Reimbursement Model Code. The thing is, it's, um, it's, a, it's a voluntary code. It was meant to be a stopgap until a more permanent system was put in place. But um, like the London Eye or the Eiffel Tower, it was set up as a temporary measure, but it's still in place two years later. And as I say, since not everybody has subscribed to it, coverage is patchy. And Paul, is this what the PSR paper is now looking at? Um, well, actually, the PSR is suggesting um, uh, several options, actually, um, in terms of helping, trying to help uh, tackle APP scams. Um, specifically, those made via faster payments and backs, which uh, are actually a couple of payment systems the PSR, PSR itself um, oversees. So one option would be um, introducing a mandatory reimbursement scheme to replace the voluntary CRM code that Jean just mentioned. Um, and I think this is probably the headline uh, suggestion um, because it would be uh, quite a big deal for the industry. It would mean, for example, changing payment system rules so that all payment service providers are actually required to reimburse those no blame victims of APP fraud. Um, that mandatory protection of customers would definitely push the cost of this fraud um, a lot higher. Um, and it's most likely to actually push, push the cost of this onto payment services firms. Um, and so we would kind of need to start factoring that into the cost of providing uh, services um, when we're thinking about uh, how much as payment services firms we're charging customers. So ultimately it could end up 
costing us, the public, uh, more money. So as it stands, um, as long as a payment service provider has executed a transaction correctly, then actually it's not liable under the law to reimburse the customer um, for any resulting loss to that customer. And the voluntary code has tried to fill this gap. And the PSR suggestion is another plug to fill that gap even further, potentially. I mean, the fact that they have to plug that gap, is that a suggestion that the code isn't working? I, I think it would be unfair to say that the code isn't working. Um, I definitely think it's made a noticeable difference. But it's, I think it's just simply because of the level of APP fraud that there's clearly still more that everyone can do to, to try and plug, essentially, a bigger gap. Um, the data is imperfect on this, but the PSR does think that only about half of scam victims who should be reimbursed are actually being reimbursed at the moment. Um, I suppose it's also worth kind of flagging at this point that actually requiring firms to reimburse no-blame victims is, as I mentioned, kind of the headline proposal, but it's definitely not the only one that's being suggested by the PSR in their paper. And there are a couple of, uh, there are a couple of other um, suggestions as well. The first one being requiring payments firms to publish more data on APP fraud. Um, and the idea behind that is that actually more transparency would potentially incentivize firms to do more to prevent scams um, and to reimburse victims. Um, and also, um, they're looking at how they can potentially standardize risk scores and how they're shared with uh, other payment service providers, with the idea behind this being that actually this could lead to better coordination between firms in tackling new scams as they emerge. Um, and just kind of whilst I've got the floor on this, there is just one other thing I would like to add, um, and that's that these options are definitely not being suggested as being mutually exclusive. Um, the PSR thinks that actually any combination of these measures could potentially help prevent APP scams in the first place and protect consumers who do fall victim, unfortunately, to these scams from time to time. We don't often get to talk about case law on this podcast, but there has been a recent case which touches on APP, hasn't there? Yeah, two of my favourite things, case law and APP. I mean, it's almost like my birthday came early. So let's say we get a lot of noise around um, APP fraud, but this was actually um, a case, a high court decision, and it was picked up by many of the papers in January. Um, as It was an APP scam, and basically a retired couple were tricked into sending £700,000 to fraudsters who pretended to be working for the Financial Conduct Authority um, and they were asked to send the money as part of an anti-fraud investigation. But the reason this case is interesting is because of what it means for the so-called um, Quince Care duty. So Quince Care is an older case um, and that said there's an implied term in bank contracts that the bank must not execute a customer order if it reasonably believes that the order is an attempt to misappropriate the customer's funds. Um, and what this latest case confirms is that Quince Care duty only goes so far. Uh, the judge in this case felt that it would not be fair to impose liability on the banks for this kind of APP fraud. So the courts are taking quite a commercial um, decision, it would seem, in these instances. And I mean, £700,000 is a lot of money to lose. So where does that leave us then? And where does that leave the payments industry in, in relation to tackling for, uh, APP fraud? It's never going to be a victimless crime um, because apart from the upset to the actual person who's got scammed, if they get reimbursed, someone's paying for it. And that's likely to be um, me because I take these things personally, but also all of you who have bank accounts. 
um, you know, it is like insurance, isn't it? If, if, if you have a lot of claims in one year, the premiums go up and you may not have claimed, but that really doesn't matter. So I think it's an interesting one because courts were unwilling to require the payment firms to reimburse the poorer victims. Um, and I wonder what impact that will have on what the work the payment systems regulator is doing and the industry um, position to agree changes to the payment system rules. Um, ultimately, payment system providers will likely see the cost of doing business um, get more expensive and that will then get more expensive for us as customers to participate. We said at the start that there were two papers published by the PSR. We've covered the one on APP fraud. What does the other one look at, Paul? Thanks, Simon. Yes, this, this second paper is another call for views, um, but it's looking at the level of consumer protection when consumers are making payments directly from one payment account to another via UK-based uh, interbank payment systems. Um, basically, the PSR is interested in kind of starting to work out whether these interbank payment systems and interbank payments specifically may need additional protection being attached to them um, and how consumers might go about claiming that protection um, if something goes wrong. And, and what do we mean by interbank payments in this context? Well, it's probably worth just taking a step back um, and thinking about the different ways in which we can pay for things. On the one hand, you have cash, which we're all very familiar with, we've had for thousands of years. Um, we also have card payments, um, but then on the other hand, you have interbank transfers. And if you look at your bank account statement, for example, you might spot that there are different types of payments that go through different systems. So, for example, um, you probably would receive your salary via BACS, which is one type of UK payment system. Um, but if you're buying a house, the money will move by, by a different payment system called CHAPS. And there's yet another payment system called faster payments, which will be used typically for lower value payments like sending money to a friend or to a family member, or as we've certainly seen during the pandemic and becoming increasingly popular, um, sending payments to retailers. And we've actually seen a much larger volume of transactions move via faster payments in recent years. Um, and that is likely to increase more as consumers and retailers use it. And in fact, and according to Pay UK, their latest estimates are that there were 3 billion transactions or up to 3 billion transactions that were made using faster payments um, in 2020 alone. Um, so given the additional volume that faster payments in particular is now handling, again, in particular in relation to consumer uh, payment transactions, um, the PSR is now beginning to look at and exploring how both it and the industry as a whole can best ensure that consumers and businesses are not going to be disproportionately harmed when something potentially goes wrong with their interbank payment. Um, and this can include things such as faults with goods or services being purchased or somehow a payment not being received properly. And I think if you actually read the PSR paper on this um, and the comparisons that they're making, what is interesting is that they are very much looking at the protections that consumers have when making card-based payments under the rules of those card-based schemes and looking at whether there is a potential gap, particularly with faster payments, that again may be needing to be plugged in order to offer consumers similar protections using faster payments in particular um, and therefore giving consumers more confidence in using faster payments um, as a payment method.
The PSR is inviting responses on both papers until 8th of April 2021, and the PSR plans to set out its proposed next steps later this year. Next, we have an update from Harry on a consultation which the FCA has launched. Our usual what you might have missed segment is strictly limited to 30 seconds, but given that the consultation paper is 335 pages long, not going to hold you to that, Harry. So Harry, over to you. Uh, what is the FCA uh, raising in its latest consultation paper? Uh, thanks, Simon. It's a wide ranging consultation. Um, where the FCA is suggesting various changes to its rules and guidance for payments firms. The most eye-catching um, one, which got most of the news, was increased the contactless threshold to £100 uh, rather than the current £45 limit. They do note that, uh, while that's quite a jump, um, that this limit does exist in similar currencies in other countries such as Australia, Canada and Singapore, um, and they haven't seen any adverse impact of, on fraud rates uh, in those countries. So. Uh, that would seem to be uh, good news, uh, particularly for those of us who, who continue to uh, forget their PIN numbers. Um, on the other changes, there are quite a few changes to uh, strong customer authentication, a new exemption, uh, for example, for the 90-day reauthentication rule in certain circumstances. Um, they're also changing timeframes around testing of fallback interfaces and removing the option uh, to enable third-party access via modified customer interface something which will certainly make the process a lot smoother, but is not particularly uh, user-friendly for those businesses, a lot of businesses who have gone down that route um, for third-party access. Uh, possibly the most interesting takeaway is that this is the first move by the UK to diverge from EU rules in the payments and e-money space since Brexit. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how, um, how that develops in due course. Um, and finally, as I said, there have been quite a lot of other changes um, in the approach document, and it looks like I'm not the only one who's been clairvoyant recently, as Mystic Gene in one of our podcasts last year um, was casting doubt on whether the temporary guidance on safeguarding um, would actually become permanent. And this is one of the things that the FCA has suggested that that does become uh, uh, permanent. So, um, so that is uh, another interesting um, uh, point for the industry to, to look at. Uh, consultation closes on the 30th of uh, April this year for those who would like to put in a response. Thank you very much. If you have any questions or any topics you would like us to cover in future episodes, you can tweet at linklatestech or email fintech.podcasts at linklatest.com. Until next time, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.